First, though, we start in Ukraine. That is the sound of people fleeing Ukraine. That taken near the Ukraine-Moldova border as millions of people flee that country. We have seen the horrific images and video and seen the photos of the bombing of a children's hospital, a maternity hospital, and multiple casualties. Well, my first guest is here to talk more about what is happening in Ukraine, as well as what the international community can continue doing to support people. Dr. George Husilak is with the Ukrainian World Congress. He is their Vice President of Development and Fundraising. He's also a member of the Ontario Medical Association and the College of Family Physicians of Canada and he's been in practice he's been practicing family medicine in Ontario since 1992. Uh, Dr. Husilak, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Jill. Uh, we're going to talk about supporting uh, Ukrainians, supporting the country. I would like to get your your take though on what's happening as far as uh, the latest developments what we're hearing from Ukraine, uh, the Russian bombing of a children's hospital, uh, unknown casualties in that bombing. What are what is your response to what you're seeing happening there? Well, Jill, this is this is just heartbreaking. You know what what the world is seeing unfolding in Ukraine. Um, <clears throat> we have to, we have to remember the original pretext for the Russian invasion. Uh, Mr. Putin claimed that he is uh, doing sort of a limited military exercise in order to, you know, firstly, denazify Ukraine to protect the Russian speakers and to neutralize Ukraine's military. And, you know, what, what we are seeing now is, you know, indiscriminate bombings of residential areas, daycares, hospitals, schools that have nothing to do with military neutralization. As far as denazifying Ukraine and protecting Russian speakers, uh, you know, Ukraine overwhelmingly elected a Russian-speaking Jewish president a number of years ago. And many of the areas that they are using, you know, their cluster bombs and thermobaric devices, are, these are eliminating Russian-speaking neighborhoods as well. So to hear, to hear that innocents are perishing and suffering uh, is really, really um, tragic. Are you hearing from people on the ground? Uh, again, we've heard of the, the striking of the children's hospital. We know a maternity hospital in Mariupol has been hit and severely damaged as well. Are you hearing from people who are, are still trying to escape and trying to get away from that? Uh, in, interestingly, yes. I was just uh, in, in contact with a number of people on the ground uh, earlier today. Uh, you know, one was uh, a medical person in Lviv in Western Ukraine, you know, urgently asking for more aid and asking where what we are supplying is going and really sort of uh, urging us to do more and to do just spread the word as much as we can. Uh, I've also heard from some people who've managed to make it out. And, you know, although they're relatively safe, you know, beyond the Ukrainian border, uh, they, they're still their lives are completely ruined, completely displaced. And you know, if they are fortunate enough to return home, at some point, there's a very good chance their home no longer exists. 
It's just in looking at some of the images and the video that's coming out of Ukraine, it is just, uh, I mean, it's heartbreaking to to say the least. I would imagine for you, though, somebody who's also a medical doctor to see medical facilities targeted, like you said, that was not what Vladimir Putin said was the goal at the start of this. And to see those medical facilities targeted as well, that, that must resonate even more with you. You're absolutely right, Jill. I mean, this this is clearly an attempted extermination of the Ukrainian population. It's it's a genocide before our eyes, and you know this has nothing. This is nothing to do with his pretext for uh, invasion. I think what we're seeing as as time passes is obviously uh, an emboldened Ukrainian military, which has enjoyed some early success. Uh, we're seeing a Ukrainian president who has shown what leadership and heroism really, really is. And we're seeing a Russian military that was thought to be relatively insurmountable that is flawed. And I think all these factors together are making Mr. Putin more and more desperate. And he is, you know, rather than rethinking and pulling back, he's doubling down and, you know, thinking about annihilation. And do you think when we see response then, say, from the United States yesterday saying that they are no longer going to import any Russian oil or gas and we see other sanctions, that's obviously meant to try and stop this. But do you think that maybe this that those moves could ignite it further? Well, one hope one hope is that, you know, these uh, economic sanctions that have been put in place since the all out invasion uh, they are crippling Russia's economy to a degree. Um, limiting the flow of Russian gas and oil is going to further this. The the problem I see is that, you know, ever since the invasion of and annexing of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine back in 2014, the Western response, there has been a response, but it's been tepid at best. And someone like Putin sensing this is emboldened to do more and more. Um, the result of this is, you know, we're still we're still sort of wondering. We don't want to provoke him more. You know, NATO is reluctant to uh, to call his bluff. And if we could honestly, you know, institute a no-fly zone in Ukraine, if those jets that were going to be, you know, donated to Ukraine uh, could have happened, these kind of things would. This is a man who understands force. So these sort of measures would really make the, both the Russian military, the Kremlin, and most importantly, Mr. Putin, question you know, their further course of action. And while we watch this happening, so many people here want to support Ukraine, want to support Ukrainians and do whatever they can. What is your suggestion or, or what, would you, what can you tell people about doing that and what, what people can do that would best offer support to people in Ukraine? Um, great, great question. Um, there are there are you know many people doing things on the level of schools. Both my children in their schools, they're having blue and yellow days and supporting and collecting. On a larger scale, there are many uh, entities that are raising funds for humanitarian relief. You know, including Red Cross, uh, Ukrainian Canadian Congress, Canada Ukraine Foundation, Help Us Help. Uh, our organization, which is Ukrainian World Congress, we're focusing on providing protective equipment to defenders in Ukraine. So that means uh, night vision goggles, helmets, bulletproof vests, individual medical kits, uh, communication devices. And uh, our site, uh, our, our effort is called Unite with Ukraine at unitewithukraine.com. So it, anybody anywhere can contribute. So if somebody wants to make a difference, 
um, they can just click on, uh, read about it, learn about what's going on. And we have logistics in place that are moving very, very swiftly, efficiently, and we are able to verify that things are deliverable where they need to be uh, deployed the most. Uh, we were talking with a, a local church leader yesterday. Uh, he was talking about getting those supplies, body armor, goggles, uh, the, that type of supplies to people in Ukraine as well, but saying lo- the logistics, they wished it was easier to export things from, say, Canada to get them to, to Ukraine. Uh, are there ways, are there other ways that your group is finding uh, other neighboring countries uh, that, that are able to help with that, getting that equipment and those supplies? Yes, um, as we know, you know, currently the western border to Ukraine is still open. So in the neighboring countries, primarily Poland, but also uh, the other neighboring countries, we are able to procure, uh, deliver, and uh, you know, distribute in Ukraine uh, these protective uh, equipments. Um, we have logistics on the ground on either side of the border, and it, it's in the form of people who have experienced combat who know the ground and are able to distribute this. So um, already a difference is being felt. And, you know, we can't imagine what effect this has on their morale in the country as well, just to know that the West is with them and the world is with them. And we heard that number as well from the United Nations saying that 2 million Ukrainians have already fled, have left that country. Do you think that's an accurate number or do you think we will see many more? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I, I know the number was sort of rising in the hundreds of thousands, and then I heard 1.2 million. And I, I, I think uh, many people have been sort of pushing towards the borders. And over the past 48 hours, there has been a larger exodus. Um, I'm not obviously qualified to say how many have, have exited so far, but that's one other thing that you know the world community can do is open their doors or contribute to the eventually eventual sort of um, you know, rehabilitation of these refugees that are that are going to be coming very shortly. All right. And just to uh, repeat the link where people can find out more about uh, Unite with Ukraine, it's the Unite with Ukraine website, or how else can people find that and get involved or learn more about that? Yes, it's unitewithukraine.com, or you could go to the Ukrainian World Congress website. There's a lot of information there uh, about what we do, and there are also daily updates on what is happening on the ground. Uh, As well, there is a link to join uh, Unite with Ukraine, and uh, it's all very uh, user-friendly. All right. Uh, Dr. George Husalak, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today, and hope to talk to you again soon. Joe, thank you so much for having me. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, the B.C. government is being asked to quickly develop a policy that would distribute a safer supply of drugs. This is following a review panel. It was looking at more than 6,000 overdose deaths, and now it wants the government to work with the B.C. Centre for Disease Control, as well as the B.C. Centre on Substance Use, and to create that policy by May 9th. Joining me to talk more about this is Donald McPherson, Canadian Drug Policy Coalition Executive Director, Don McPherson, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, I'm happy, I'm happy to be here. Uh, these numbers, I mean, they're just uh, the the numbers of people that are dying from illicit drug overdoses. Uh, when, when you uh, add them up and know that each one of those numbers is a person, and we're talking about uh, when we've been hearing in the news uh, that the numbers are higher than all so many other causes of death combined. 
What is the number one recommendation then in this report or this this review that could try and help and prevent these deaths? Well, I think I think the uh, the the panel uh, felt that given the staggering numbers uh, that we're seeing uh, over the last number of years, uh, and they're and they're increasing each year. Um, I think that the panel really felt that we have to get our head around how do we replace or give an alternative to the toxic illegal drug market uh, as part of a, an emergency response. And that's why safe, safe supply uh, or safer supply rose to the, the surface in terms of something we can do uh, quickly and with urgency. And how would a safer supply uh, distribution system, how would that work? It would take pharmaceutical-grade drugs, uh, opioids, uh, stimulants, uh, drugs that uh, in the illegal side of the market are extremely toxic uh, and have been for a number of years now, and make them available to, uh, to people who are using, accessing the illegal market uh, in an effort to uh, address that toxicity uh, crisis. Over 85% of the deaths in the, in, uh, the six, over 6,000 deaths that we reviewed had illegal fentanyl in their system. Um, so it, it really is this toxicity that is the primary problem. And uh, in order to get to any other issues that people have who are using drugs, uh, they need to be alive for us to work with them. And do you think it would work then as far as people accessing a safer supply? Are people open to doing that or would they be open, do you think, to, to accessing drugs in that way from somebody who's licensed and is providing that safer supply? Oh, if, if given a choice, absolutely. Uh, so many people who are using drugs uh, know the risks they're taking. Uh, and uh, if given a choice for a pharmaceutical product of a known dose that would work for them, uh, undoubtedly um, they would. And uh, the small experimental programs we're seeing emerging uh, have had pretty good results. You know, people are retained in the programs. Uh, people aren't dying in those programs. It, but the programs need to be scaled up and made diverse. So there's a, a, an array of uh, opportunities for people to access these substances. At any, at any given day, there's about 100,000 people at risk in, uh, who are using opioids in British Columbia. Um, so... We have 1,300 pharmacies across the province. Um, people could be accessing safer supply through those, through harm reduction services, through clinics, through hospitals, uh, compassion clubs. There's a whole array of, of, of delivery services that we could come up with. Uh, we just need to put, you know, get the green light to move ahead in a big way. And when you talk about to the point you made that if somebody is going to go on to get any kind of treatment or or is going to seek out anything like that, obviously they need to be alive to do that. Do the the pilot programs or these smaller programs or even what we've seen in other countries, do they show that in offering up safe supply, does that lead to, to people, even a percentage of people getting to the point where they then do seek out treatment and they do stop using opioids? Um, the the early sort of uh, clinical uh, versions of this in Switzerland showed good results. Uh, people 
some people moved on to treatment, uh, but the heroin-assisted treatment program that the Swiss evolved, uh, you know, demonstrated that people's overall well-being and health, uh, employability, uh, housing improved when they had a regulated supply of heroin. Uh, it, it changed their lives uh, in, in significant ways when you don't have to navigate the criminalized market uh, uh, every day of your life to to access these substances. Um, so, you know, the, the research uh, that exists is good. And uh, right now, you, you, there are some pilot programs across Canada that are producing more research. Uh, the one thing we do know is that the current drug policy of prohibition, which creates this toxic market, is not good. And it needs to be replaced. So we're really at a point where uh, we have let our drug policy prohibition prevail for too long. Uh, it is now so toxic, it is killing people, and we need to begin to transition to another uh, model where people can actually access the substances they need and not take a deadly risk every time they purchase a substance at the street level. Why do you think there is still such reluctance, even given that information, given that evidence, given what you're talking about when it's these smaller studies in other countries uh, and even here? Why is there such a reluctance, do you think, to embrace that or to even try it on a bigger scale? A hundred years of drug prohibition, criminalization, stigmatization of these substances, which are you know, before before the treaties uh, were signed in the early 1900s, these these substances were used in in, uh, in medicine. Opium was available. Uh, heroin was used in in medicines. Uh, it, it's 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 re- we really have to open our eyes and get with the program and modernize our thinking when it comes to these substances. We are a drug using society, North America. We use more pharmaceutical products than any other area of the world. Uh, we love alcohol. We, you know, we, we like tobacco less than we used to, but we consume drugs. Uh, so we have to bring these other substances, some of which are very valuable substances, back into the fold of a regulatory system where people can access them and use them for the benefits that they have to offer, and also that will allow us to get on with building a system uh, system of services for people who actually develop issues with substances or dependencies. Uh, we, it, the, the war in drugs has been the, an, an aberration in the way we do things. We regulate everything <laughs> except these few substances. There are hundreds of drugs we regulate and people have access to in different ways. So we need to redesign our uh, system of uh, accessing substances. Uh, the date, I think I had read there that uh, they would like to see a, the policy in place. This panel is asking that the policy be in place by May 9th. Uh, are you confident that there could be a policy in place or we could see a, a substantial uh, movement on this by May 9th? I would like to think that. I, I know the coroner's report generally is just trying to really light a fire and, and regain the sense of urgency that we we might have had in 2016. And since then, we've sort of lapsed into a new normal type of thinking. Um, I would really like to see a robust response from the provincial government to this report. It's, uh, it's beyond time to scale up uh, some of these services. 
Uh, and uh, this is not going to go away. The drug market has changed. And it it's totally predictable that around 2,000 people will die next or this year in 2022 in this province. Uh, we know that. So we have to uh, rapidly uh, change the way we're, we're uh, approaching this issue. All right. Donald McPherson, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this review and what it's calling for. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today. Well, Dying with Dignity Canada's groups in Metro Vancouver, Victoria and the Okanagan have all launched a campaign and the goal is to end the forced transfers in BC's publicly funded healthcare facilities. That's when a patient needs to move locations for a medically assisted death because the facility where they happen to be being treated doesn't allow that to be done in that facility. Joining us to talk more about this campaign is Alex Muir, chair of the Metro Vancouver chapter of Dying with Dignity. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, how big of an issue is this, the, uh, the forced transfers of people who are looking to or who have uh, or, uh, arranged for a medically assisted death? Um, it's, it's significant, and it's been going on si- um, since uh, medical assistance in dying or made became legal in 2016. Um, this, this situation has persisted, and, and you know, it's something that we feel uh, need, needs to be addressed. And can you explain a little bit, is it religious, uh, religious organizations that run hospitals, or what types of facilities are the facilities that get public money but don't allow for made? Yes, what it, what it comes back to, there was, a, there was a, an agreement um, signed by the government back in 1996. It's called the Master Agreement with the denomin- it's called the Denominational Health Association, which represents 21 owners of 44 faith-based facilities in the province. And what this agreement says is that they're not obligated to provide services which conflict with their values and beliefs. And so as a result of that, they're, they're exempt um, because they don't believe in medical assistance and dying. They're, they're not forced to provide this service, which is actually in contravention of the Canada Health Act, which, uh, which says that governments have to prov- you know, offer equ- equitable access to all medically necessary services funded by the, funded by the government. Uh, so how do you think they've been getting away with this, not, uh, not doing this and saying, no, we're not going to allow for MAID for medically assisted dying uh, because we don't believe in it? Um, it's because I think the, the government um, is, is very cautious about, uh, you know, tackling the issue. Um, you know, we, we've heard from the government, and we know that part of it is, that, you know, the ministry has been very busy with other issues like COVID and, and the opioid crisis. But, but this is something that, that we think is, is on, you know, it's something that is going to keep, keep happening and something that has to be addressed because, um, we don't, you know, Ipsos recently did a survey, and, we, and the survey showed that 89% of British Columbians believe that someone who meets the medical criteria and is suffering, suffering intolerably should be able to terminate their lives. And, and 74% of those believe that all healthcare facilities that receive public funds have an obligation to provide the full range of healthcare services. So the public is strongly um, on, on our side in, in addressing this, but I think there's not a, a lot of political will to, to, to tackle the issue. Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, the, the most recent uh, comment we've had from, from Minister Dix is that, uh, you know, the rene- renegotiate, renegotiating or terminating this master agreement would 
be a significant undertaking with, and he says, with impacts across the health system far beyond the issues of access to MAID. And, you know, reading between the lines, I think what, what he's really saying is that, you know, when you're tackling faith-based exemptions, it's not just medical assistance and dying, but the other big area is um, women's reproductive rights. Like, if you look at Pro- Providence Health, which is the largest, by far the largest member of the denominational health association, does not allow women to have abortions or tubal ligations or provide birth control um, in their facilities. So once we, so once you don't allow these faith-based exemptions, it opens a whole can of worms, and we think that's why the government is not willing to tackle the, tackle this issue. Even though the government really, and I get what you're saying, it would be another uh, huge debate, but even though in this scenario, the government really does hold a lot, if not all of the cards, don't they, in that they're the ones with the billions of dollars in funding? Exactly, and, and, we, and we don't understand why they don't, why they don't use that lever. Uh, if you look at the funding of Providence Health, they were, they've been given over $3 billion over the last five years, and the government has recently committed another $1.2 billion towards the construction of the new St. Paul's Hospital, uh, and, and they've said, Providence has declared there, there will be no accommodation for medical assistance in dying in this new hospital. So, um, the, you know, so taxpayers, are, taxpayers who, who want the service aren't able to get it. There was a recent story as well that was in the it was documented in the Orca from last month, and it was exactly that somebody who was who had arranged for a medically assisted death, and in a night of extreme pain, taken her partner took her to St. Paul's Hospital. If nothing changes, or if there is no political will to change this, is it a matter of people will have to know when you are if you are going to have a medical assisted death, if you are going down that path, people will have to know when the time comes to go to the hospital, you have to go to a specific hospital. You have to be very choosy about where you go. Um, I, I wish it were that simple, but it's, it's not. Um, the, the, the Vancouver Coastal Health has a policy, it's a policy called first available bed. So when paramedics show up at the door, let's say you have an emergency and you're rushed off to hospital, the paramedics are told where to take you, and it's, it's based on what's going on at the local hospital. So if you're in, the, if you're in you know, downtown Vancouver or, or the west side of Vancouver and VGH is busy, you're, you're going to St. Paul's. And you, don't really have, you don't really have a say where you end up. So, so this, this compounds the problem because you, don't really, you, you can't really control where, where you're going. Uh, That story as well also uh, documents some chaos about getting transferred. So this patient was uh, to be transferred to Vancouver General to have the medically assisted uh, dying. There was a bit of a communication breakdown. It caused a lot of stress for not only the patient, but for her family members and for something that she had really planned out. And, and while it's not a comfortable topic for anybody, she really had planned it out to be uh, the most, I guess, as smooth as possible. And that was kind of all, all thrown out the window because she was taken to St. Paul's. Do we need to do a better job, do you think, then, of, of if this isn't changed, then offering up the transfers for people and making sure that transfers do go smoothly? Yes, I mean obviously you want that to happen, but but we don't understand why this why the transfers have to happen at all. Because and if you if you think about it, then the article that Scott Harrison wrote that you're referring to, I thought did a really good job describing what someone goes through. I mean, so here's someone who is taken out of their 
community of care. And, and think about other cases where you've got people who are in hospice care in, in, a, in a religious hospice, and they're transferred out. So these are people who have been surrounded by caregivers that they've come to know um, and, you know, and, and, and appreciate, and then they're, they're removed and taken to, off to some other facility where they don't know anybody, um, and, it, it's a, and it's usually a sterile environment where they end up. Um, and, and there's no there's no reason for this transfer. A, a medically assisted death is a very simple medical procedure, and there's no there's no logistical reason why it couldn't take place. And forcing someone to go through this transfer when they're at the end of life in pain, and, and the, the other issue is is, is uh, basically balancing out their medications because they have to be medicated well enough so that they're not suffering during the transfer, but they can't be over-medicated because in most cases they have to be able to consent to the procedure at the other end. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated um, and unnecessary process to put someone through. And when you mention hospice, does it seem strange to you that this is the same health minister that really stood up against a, a group that was taking over the Delta Hospice Society for this issue as well and not allowing certain procedures, certain medical choices? And the VC government, the health ministry was very firm and very strong with that group. Do you think it's because perhaps that was on a smaller scale? Uh, the reason was that Delta Hospice is not faith-based. They're trying to become faith-based, and they were not at the time, and they still are not faith-based. And so the government did the, did the right thing, and, and I applaud the government for what they did. They stepped in, and they said, you do not fall under this master agreement, you, you, so you do not qualify for this exemption. Therefore, you must provide this service. And that was the, that was the right decision, and that they, uh, I think that was a really good decision, having Fraser Health take over operation of, of Delta Hospice. But I think the government should go the one step further now and just look at these exemptions because there's really, there's really no need for them. And what will your group do then as far as calling for the end to this, getting more people aware of this and involved in this? If, if it does breach the Canada Health Act, is there a way you could continue through the courts? I know that's already taken place, but what else can your group do? We, we believe so. What we did is two weeks ago we launched a public uh, petition, and it is, it is on our website, asking people to write to their MLA. And we've also, we've also met with a lot of MLAs over the last two weeks, about 25 of them in total. In, in Zoom meetings, but but what we see coming down down the road is a court case because um, we we don't believe that um, hospitals qual- will qualify for this uh, exemption. The legal the the constitutional lawyers that we've spoken to um, believe that the, the jurisprudence to date on freedom of religion suggests that publicly funded hospitals would likely not qualify. For protection under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So doctors and nurses who who don't agree with providing MAID already have protections. So under the MAID legislation, they do not have to participate in the process at all. So any doctor or nurse at St. Paul's, for example, doesn't have to participate. But what the government has done, what the provincial government has done through this master agreement is they, they've kind of extended that right to institutions. And, and our belief is that is not... Um, that that should not be allowed under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, what we think is going to happen, what we're hoping is going to happen, is that is that someone who a family that's that's gone through a forced transfer will be willing to take the province to court on this and challenge challenge this exemption that's in place, because we think um, it, it it's something that will not hold up.
All right. Well, Alex, thank you so much. I know it's not an easy topic for, for a lot of people, and it's not one that's easy to talk about, but very important for people as well. So thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thank you for having me. Well, last week on the program, we spent quite a lot of time talking about small businesses, about things like 25 cent cup fees, insanely intricate and complicated patio proposal applications, even for patios that are already in place and have been for a couple of years. And this, as we mark the second anniversary of the start of the pandemic, although it almost seems wrong to call it an anniversary, the marking of two years of this pandemic. So how are small businesses doing? Joining us now is Annie Dormuth, CFIB Provincial Affairs Director for BC. That's the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Annie, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Always great to be on the show, Joe. How are small businesses doing? Well, I would have to say, uh, you know, economic recovery still has yet to be a reality for small businesses across the entire province. Uh, Throughout this entire pandemic, you know, the number of businesses back to making normal sales in the province has fluctuated between 30 and 35 percent. And still right now at the beginning of March, as you mentioned, uh, you know, coming up to two years of this ongoing pandemic, only 35 percent of BC small businesses have returned to normal sales. And why is that? That does seem like a small number. I know there are still some restrictions in place, but why is it such a a only 35% do you think that have returned to normal sales? Well, a lot of it, again, is we're just kind of coming out to, I would have to say, um, businesses getting back to more normal pre-pandemic levels, uh, thinking specifically of gyms being able to reopen at full capacity and restaurants. So, of course, we are going to be carefully monitoring these numbers throughout, uh, the, throughout the summer months here to see if we see an impact. But a lot of the reasons we are hearing from small businesses is uh, simply, you know, for example, costs, overall operating costs are increasing, much like we're all seeing with regards to uh, price increases at the pumps and inflation, inflation pressures. As well as, uh, you know, you know, customers have just been slow to return as well. Um, of course, we, we, we're always watching kind of these indicators of economic recovery and do hope to see an uptick uh, throughout the summer months here as uh, hopefully more people feel comfortable getting back out and supporting their local businesses. Uh, you mentioned uh, price at the pump, uh, inflation, uh, certainly those must be factors as well in that food is costing more. People know gas is very expensive. Uh, is it too soon or can you see if that is having an impact on other businesses, things that people might be the first things to, to cut, whether it's eating in restaurants or, or other kind of discretionary spending? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, this is also having an impact as us as consumers making those choices um, independently in in our own homes and and personal lives as well. So, of course, all of this is adding again to to the pressures that the pandemic and impact the pandemic has has, has had and continues to have on small businesses. But definitely one of the biggest uh, impacts right now that we are seeing from small businesses from our February survey is that rising, rising prices on food, insurance, other business costs are having a very significant impact on small businesses right now. With all of the help that was in place, the government support systems for both workers and for business owners, has that run out or, or did that have a big, a big impact as far as at the time? Did it keep businesses afloat and now it's this kind of transitioning to, to getting back and back to perhaps close to how things were before? 
Of course, what we are hearing, especially from those hardest hit businesses, thinking those in arts and rec, you know, your local gym and restaurants that have borne the brunt of restrictions, um, those are the ones that are still, I would have to say, the slowest at the recovery rates and have posted on average higher amounts of COVID-19 related debt to survive. Of course, you know, the federal support programs and the provincial support programs did help during the pandemic. But of course, we are concerned once those are no longer accessible to small businesses, whether or not businesses will be able to hold on without those supports and still seeing these quite, I would have to say, low levels of return to normal sales. And when we talk about red tape, I know your organization talks about red tape a lot, and we certainly got a lot of calls from business owners, uh, from people uh, that are just frustrated, especially if we're talking about the city of Vancouver with this 25 cent cup fee, uh, the patio program that that had been a streamlined program through at the beginning of the pandemic to get those seats and to get some help for those businesses now being told they have to spend thousands of dollars on applications, get structural engineers to keep these patios going how how hurtful is that to businesses well of course you know red tape production and cfib just had its annual red tape production week uh, a couple weeks ago or last week there where we did highlight you know some of these best examples of the pandemic um, that municipalities and provinces undertook throughout throughout the last two years and our call to action has always been to keep those best practices in place. So it's definitely extremely frustrating, you know, to hear that um, additional red tape and costs are being added onto businesses at a time when they can least afford it and still recognizing, you know, throughout the summer months here, those extended patios will be needed to make customers feel as, uh, you know, feel as comfortable as they can be uh, returning into some of these uh, dine-in service areas. So definitely disappointing to see what has happened uh, in the city of Vancouver and as well as the provincial uh, expedited uh, patio permitting coming to a close here. Uh, the the CFIB is calling for a few things then. One of them has to do with the five-day employer-paid sick leave policy that was just brought in recently. What would you like to see happen there? Well, again, it came in at a cost where it came in at a time when businesses could least afford it. We keep hearing from small businesses. Keep in mind this came into effect on January 1st, where we still had some businesses still completely closed at that time. So our one call to action right now is moving that to government paid um, instead of completely employer paid right now. But as well, just, you know, fixing the very confusing rules with this policy. We continue to have members phone into CFIB struggling to navigate it, um, including, you know, the legislative kind of nuance or loophole that for some businesses, these five days is actually 10. Uh, We've, you know, we raised this issue to government, hoping that there can be a quick legislative change Uh, that has yet to come. So still, you know, asking the provincial government for more assistance on fixing this policy. Uh, also calling for the cancellation of the employer health tax uh, that was uh, what was brought in when we we got rid of uh, the the MSP what would you like to see there as well as again you know if businesses are now being expected to pay for a paid sick leave policy it's a little bit of a double cost there for employers to as well pay for the employer health tax uh, when the government introduces the very very much trumped it up as you know a health a health cost and now businesses are paying for both of them again calling for them to uh, to remove that for business owners as a as a cost relief measure for them and uh, of course we all know that the carbon tax is coming and increasing on April 1st here and we are seeing the price uh, pressures on the pump other provinces have introduced uh, measures for for gas relief such as removing the provincial sales tax portion of it 
Um, other provinces are looking at that, and we're calling on the BC government to do something similar as well. You would like to see them, even if it's temporarily, remove the provincial part of the taxation? That's correct. And again, every measure, including the one announced in Alberta, is also as a temporary three-month measure. Um, all of this can help small businesses right now as, as, we, as, again, just helping with cost relief as, you know, businesses are dealing with all of these cost pressures. All right. Annie Dorma, thanks so much for joining us and for talking more about this today. Appreciate it. Of course. Always great to be on the show.